I'm going to read from uh, 1 John chapter 5. Coming to the end of this what particular letter, and then we'll look um, briefly next week and the week after at 2 John and 3 John. Uh, if you've got a Bible, it would be good if you had it open. And if it's a church Bible, it's page 1,161. Uh, So it's John chapter 5, and I'll begin at verse 13, so overlap a wee bit with last week's reading. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of Him. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray that God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who has been born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we might know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true by being in His Son, Jesus Christ, He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourself from idols. So, Lord, may the words that I speak and the thoughts of our hearts hearts this evening be in accordance with your will and purposes. May you transform us in the renewing power of your Spirit for the glory of Christ's name. Amen. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life, that you may know that you have eternal life. John wants us to know, and more importantly, God wants us to know that we have eternal life. Yeah, but you know, you'd kind of think that, well, if we know we have eternal life, aren't we less likely to live for God. Aren't we more likely to enjoy sin while we can if we know that whatever happens, we'll be all right? God will still love me. I will still be His child. Even if I go out and sow my wild oats all over the place, I don't even have to try. And that's one reason why people have such problems with this kind of teaching. If in the end it's all down to God's grace, if it's all down to God's undeserved favor, if I can never earn His eternal life, if I only have to receive that as a gift, doesn't that mean I can just go on sinning, go on living like anyone else who doesn't believe in the name of the Son of God? Another reason people react against this kind of teaching this kind of teaching that says you can know, God wants you to know 
that you have eternal life is that people say it shows terrible pride and presumption. Who are you to boast that you have eternal life? I mean, look at you. I saw you get angry with that guy who cut you up at the car park the other day. I heard what you said about that person, that unki- those unkind words last week. I, and that's not, that's not even going as far as whatever's in your head at the moment. See, if we know we have eternal life, it will mean we won't bother to live for God. We'll live for ourselves, won't we? If we know we have eternal life, it just means we're being proud and presumptuous. And that's what we might think. But the teaching of the Bible is actually quite the opposite. Those who know, who really know they are loved by God and that God has given them eternal life, those who are secure in God's love are those who will live for God. It doesn't mean they can't live for themselves that they never stray or sin from God's path, uh, from God's path from, for their lives, but it does mean the whole direction of their lives has changed. And, and this is very important. That will continue to be the general direction of their lives throughout their lives. And if we claim we know we have eternal life, this isn't pride and presumption. Far from it. In fact, it's, again, it's the opposite. It's humble trust. <laughs> humble trust in what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Toward the end of John's Gospel, it says this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life. And he's written his gospel so that we might believe in Jesus the Messiah and have life in him. And this first letter of John is written that we may know we have life. The gospel is written so that we may have life. The letter is written so we may know we have life. Now, if God has gone to such great trouble to tell us how to find life in Jesus, and then to assure us that we have life in Him, isn't it pride to say, well, sorry, God, but you see, I'm still not quite sure. I'll go on fretting and trying to do my best just to make sure. I'm not a proud sort. I'm ever so humble, and I'm not going to go around boasting that I've already got eternal life. I mean, how can I know? How can I be sure? Well, maybe because God has told you. Maybe that's why you, how you can know. Maybe that's how you can be sure. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. God our Father wants us to be secure and confident in His love. And isn't that the case with any good human parent? How much more is it true of our Father in heaven? It's a bad parent who keeps their child guessing. They never tell me they love me. No matter how hard I try, it never seems to be good enough. They're always criticizing me. They never seem to affirm me. 
They never have anything good to say about me. I can never get anything right. Jane and I were having lunch in a pub recently when a man came in with two children, a baby boy who must have been just about one year old, and a young girl who was just about reaching school age. And during the course of the meal, several of the staff from the pub kitchen, uh, women's staff, came out to speak to the man. And every one of them engaged with the baby, cooed over the baby. And the baby was given stacks of attention. Not one of them even acknowledged the little girl that was there. Even the father only had negative words to say to her. He spent the whole time telling her off, telling her to sit still. And she was taking great care over a drawing she was doing, and he never commented on it. Well, let me ask you something. If that snapshot is an accurate picture of what life is like all the time for these two children, and it may not be, but just assume for the sake of this that it is, if you were to guess which one of these children is more likely to go off the rails than the other when it comes to the teenage years, which one would you say it would be? The one who was assured they were loved or the one from that snapshot who would think they weren't worth bothering about? God our Father wants us to be secure and confident in His love. So, how is that security and confidence worked out? How is it seen in the lives of his children? By the way, I'm not blaming every parent of a rebellious child on their parenting, the other factors that come in, but it's certainly a risk factor. Well, how is that security and confidence worked out? Well, it's seen in our confidence in prayer, verses 14 and 15. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of Him. If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. In other words, He hears us favorably. When God hears us in this way, He always acts, though not always in exactly the way that we would predict. But note to to it says, if we ask anything according to His will. And so we've got to be careful not to take this promise out of that context. Uh, it doesn't apply for, to everything we pray for. It's possible to have a naive view of prayer. When our son Andrew was about four, he decided he would like a baby brother or sister. So he asked Jane and I if we could arrange it. And uh, we told him if he wanted a baby brother or sister, he would have to pray for it to happen. A few days later, we were in a flower shop with him, and it was already quite busy Uh, there when in walked a mother pushing a pram with a baby in it. And Andrew looked into the pram and said, a baby, a baby. And then he pointed to the baby in the pram and announced to everyone in the shop, we're going to get one of these because we've ordered one from Jesus. (laughs) Kind of uh, got a view of uh, Jesus as sort of Amazon type So, guys, I I hate to disappoint you, but it might not be according to God's will for you to have that Bugatti Viron after all, eh? So, one way of ensuring we are praying according to God's will is to pray our prayers based on Scripture. The Lord's Prayer is the case in point. 
And Martin Ramsden, who is, well, he was a Methodist superintendent for this area before taking on a, a regional post, is one of the guys we pray with, Matt, Matt and I pray with every Tuesday morning here uh, at eight o'clock. And he uh, prayed a prayer once, a wonderful prayer that he had written, which was based entirely on Scripture. Um, and all of us asked for a copy of it. Uh, let me read you a bit of it. Heavenly Father, help me to live as a devoted disciple of Jesus and fill me with your Holy Spirit day by day. Help me always to know that in Jesus I am your beloved child and that you are well pleased with me. Help me to know that you dwell in my heart. Help me to be rooted and grounded in the knowledge of your complete love for me so that I may be filled with all your fullness. Help me to remember that I am saved by grace and it is not my doing but your gift. Help me to know and trust that your grace is sufficient for me. And the prayer goes on in that vein for over one side of A4. And every petition, every prayer is its relevant Bible reference beside it. And this is the kind of prayer you can be sure our Heavenly Father hears, hears favorably and acts on. But note what John also says. He says, if we know that He heals us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of Him. Now, I can think of two very critical occasions in my life when I have been praying in earnest, and I've had a strong conviction that God has heard that prayer. And when our son Paul was in intensive care a few years ago, the bishop at the time, Robert Lads, came to visit us late one night in hospital, the first night actually in hospital. And he apologized that he wouldn't be there after that because he was going off to Lourdes on a pilgrimage the next day. But he assured us he'd pray for Paul. And apparently a whole group of them had gone to pray by the river there for an afternoon, and they spent a whole hour praying for Paul. And afterwards, a, a vicar from London uh, said to the bishop, you know, sometimes when you pray, you feel as if you're just praying to the ceiling. He said, when we were praying for Paul then, he said, I felt as if the door of heaven was wide open. Well, Paul made a full recovery, despite us having been told he had severe hypoxic brain damage. We could approach God boldly and confidently. We should approach God boldly and confidently in our prayers. And specifically, when we know what we are praying for is in accordance with His will. And a prayer based on the promises of Scripture will be in accord with His will. We can be confident that He hears the prayers, and will act. We can also pray confidently for those who are going astray. John says in verse 16, if you see a brother or sister commit sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. Now, I don't want to get into much detail there, but comment, commentators disagree about whom it is that John's referring to. Is it Christians who commit sin? In which case, why would they need life? since John has been constantly reminding us and assuring us that Christians already have life in Christ. And if it's non-Christians, then why does Paul, sorry, John call them brothers, as he does in the Greek, which is a word he usually uses for Christians? Well, I, I could spend a long time trying to sort out which he means, Christians or non-Christians who sin. And I think I would in the end say, if in doubt, pray for them all. Christians and non-Christians, 
uh, whom we know and who we see sin. Uh, you can, we can get hung up about whether or not we pray enough. I think it's just better to realize that we can't pray too much. And what about the next bit about the sin that leads to death? What does that mean? Now, you could fill a few library shelves with what's been written about that, trying to sort of work it out. What we can say is whatever John was referring to, those who received the letter, first of all, knew what he meant. What we can also say is that we can't be certain. But if we were to interpret it in the light of other parts of Scripture, if it probably refers not so much to an individual sin or some words spoken, but to a mindset that recognizes the truth in Jesus, but that hardens its heart to say, he's not good but evil. I refuse to receive his forgiveness. I absolutely refuse to repent. I choose to stay in darkness rather than light. So it's a deliberate, lifelong choice to shun good and embrace evil. Because we are loved by God, because we can know we have eternal life, because we live in that security and confidence, we can be confident and bold in our prayers, knowing that God hears us as our loving Heavenly Father who wants only what is best for us. We're also secure in our relationship with Him, protected by Jesus Christ from any harm the evil one may wish to inflict on us. Verse 18, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was, the one who was born of God, capital O in one, keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. Well, you know, how come? How come if that's true? and I believe I've been born of God, I continue to sin. Isn't Jesus keeping me safe? Does that mean I can blame my sin on Him? Now look what you let me do. Or does it mean I'm not really born of God? Maybe my faith isn't really enough. But again, it's down to our way of life. If you think that repentance means a turnaround, which it does, a complete change of mind then I believe this is more about the direction our lives are going in than any particular individual sin. Sometimes, more so now than, say, back in the 1950s, new Christians often bring a whole baggage um, into their new life in Christ, a whole load of baggage, and, and let's face it, we all do. But sometimes people will wonder, why on earth the vicar isn't doing anything about it? Why isn't he telling them, how they ought to be living. Why doesn't he go round there and sort their lives out for them? Or throw them out of church? Well, because God allows people time. He deals gently with us. He's like the potter gently molding the clay. And in any case, Jesus tells us it's the Holy Spirit who convicts, not the vicar. Now, I'm far, far more concerned about and more likely to challenge a long-standing Christian who takes on a new sin than a new Christian who brings their old sins with them. Long-standing Christians who take on new sins are the ones who need to be challenged. And lastly on that one, God has more than a few things to sort out with the vicar, first of all. 
But I do believe Christ, and that's whom John is referring to when he says the one who was born of God, does protect us from major life choices that will be disastrous. And I can think back on to several occasions, particularly when I was a very young Christian, when I believe God protected me from taking a path that would have been pretty disastrous. And I think as we are Christians for longer, um, God, protect, God expects us to take on more and more responsibility in that regard. We can be confident that Christ keeps us safe and that the evil one cannot harm us. We live in that security. When life's trials and tribulations come along, as they inevitably will, those who are secure in God's love don't see them as a sign that God doesn't love them or that He's abandoned them. They remain confident in His love despite, even though grapes don't, the vine don't produce grapes and the, the barns are empty, yet will I praise you. So it's, it's those who aren't secure in God's love who see every setback as a sign that God doesn't really love them after all. We can be confident that Christ keeps us safe and that the evil one cannot harm us. We live in that security. But we also have a responsibility. John's last words in the letter, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Anything that takes the place of the living God in our lives is an idol. And that might be something that looks very like God, who has made himself, the, the God who has made himself known in Jesus Christ, but isn't him. I remember having a lively conversation with a friend of mine who wasn't a Christian at the time. And he started saying, well, you know, I like to think of God like this. And he went on to describe a God who wasn't much like Jesus Christ at all. And uh, so I, I asked him, where had he got that view of God from? And to be fair to him, he just kind of chuckled and said, it just popped into my head. See, make sure that the God we worship is the God who makes himself known through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let nothing and no one else take the highest place in our life. Our Heavenly Father wants us to face the world in confidence and security. He wants us to have no doubt at all that he loves us and that we already have eternal life, that we can approach him confidently in prayer that He will deliver us from evil. It's as we live in that security that we'll live lives that honor Him. I want to finish now and finish this book, look at 1 John, with chapter 5, verse 20. Because I, think of, I can think of no better grounds, no surer foundation for us to feel secure and to know, to know deep within us to have unshakable confidence through all that life may throw at us, that we are children of God and that nothing will or can separate us from His love. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And the literal translation of that is so that we may know Him who is real, the God who is reality, and we are in him who is real by being in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true and eternal God. 
And what he's saying is, my life, your life, are hid with God in Christ already. We are in God somehow already taken up into the very being of God. What an amazing truth that is. If we can grasp that, what security it will give us? We are in Him who is real, ultimate reality, by being in His Son, Jesus Christ. And so, our security is a reality that cannot be shaken. I'm going to watch a video now. Love's like a hurricane, I am a tree bending me away to his He is jealous for me Love's like a hurricane I am a tree Bending me Away to his wind and mercy God loves you And he loves you with a love That you don't even know anything about Because there is no human love Comparable to divine love God loves you He wants to forgive you He wants to have fellowship with you it doesn't make any difference how far you tried to run from God. He loves you. His eye is on you. He sees you. God created us in His image. And you as a person are important to God. The Bible says that God has the hairs of your head numbered. Every moment of your life is watched by God. Oh, how He loves us. God is listening, and God loves you. He's your friend. He'll put his arm around you, and he understands, and he answers, and he's sympathetic to your problem. God loves you, and the Bible says that God sent his son from heaven to this earth for you. Jesus Christ came to this earth to take your sins upon a cross. And he would have died had you been the only person in the whole world. He loves you. Don't ever forget he loves, 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 loves you.
Jesus Christ was nailed to that cross, he did that for you. That's how much he loves us. The Bible says, I have loved thee with an everlasting love forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. God loves you. And God has a plan for your life.